This podcast is supported by Americans for Medical Progress and was founded and created through the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, awarded annually to support projects that inform and educate the public about the critical role of animal research in furthering medical progress. The fellowship honors the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements and who was deeply committed to animal welfare and advocacy. Hey, everyone, and welcome in to this episode of Lab Rat Chat. Today, we have a special guest for you, Erin Vogelsong from Drexel University. She's here to tell you all about their Masters of Laboratory Animal Science program, and I will let her do just that. And before we get into that, though, as I do with every episode, I just want to tell you guys a little bit about ratings and reviews. They've been helping tremendously. We've been getting more and more ratings, and I even have Googled positive animal research podcasts and LabRat Chat actually comes up. So it used to not even come up. We used to just get like, we used to get PETA podcasts, um, everything that was like anti-animal research. And so now we're actually showing up. We're climbing up. Good, cool. Yeah, we actually show up. Cindy Buckmaster's podcast shows up. And so I think these ratings and reviews are kind of, are helping all of us out there trying to promote this positive side to animal research and getting the word out there about it's not just what you hear from, you know, opposition. So thank you for everyone who's rating and reviewing. Please continue to do so on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you can do that. We really appreciate that. You can email us again. We don't say this every episode, just to remind you, libratchat at gmail.com. Definitely email us. We do respond to most emails. Sometimes, yeah. We've gotten a couple strange ones. We've got some strange ones about pests, problems, and stuff. So we're not that kind of lab rat chat. We're not exterminators, but it is what it is. If I could help you with your pest problem, I'll love to. But unfortunately, I'm qualified. So with that, Aaron, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. It's nice to see you. As everyone will see, we're doing a video. This is nice. It's nice to put a face to who we're talking to because. Most of the time, we've never met the people we're speaking with until we're speaking with them. It definitely helps a little bit. So thanks for joining us. And if you would, just kind of introduce yourself you know, to our listeners and just tell us about yourself, your background, and kind of your role and what you do and how you got into your, in your current point in your career today. Sure. Yeah. So thanks a lot, Jeff, for the uh, warm welcome and Danielle. And I just have to say that uh, I'm a little intimidated because I am a big fan of not only your podcast, but the podcast that you mentioned, the Get Real podcast from Cindy Buckmaster. You know, this is my first exposure to the behind the scenes podcasting you know, structure. So I'm very excited, but also very nervous to be here. So I do appreciate that. And I'm really excited to talk with you both today. I've always had a passion to work with animals. Well, let me just back it up, I guess, and introduce myself. So like you mentioned, my name is Aaron Vogelsong, and I am the program director of the Master's of Laboratory Animal Science program at Drexel University. How I got to where I am today, you know, like everyone's journey, it's been all over the place. It hasn't necessarily been a straight line, but I don't think anyone's is necessarily. And I think the more crooked that line is, sometimes the more exciting it is as well. But so I can tell you that I always had a passion about animals like all of us in this industry. I think I specifically narrowed it down to the wildlife treasury cards that were around in 1987. And I don't know if you all were around at that time or remember those cards, but they were a monthly subscription 
auction where you could get 20 cards for $2.99 and they would tell you they featured an animal and, you know, it would be like an aardvark and there'd be a picture of an aardvark. And then on the back, it would tell you a little description about what they were and where they lived. And anyway, I just remember getting these cards in the mail and it was so exciting every month to get these cards. And I think eventually, I think my mom probably canceled this subscription, but while they were coming, it was a lot of fun. And I think it really got me started with my career and my interest in animals. So from that point, you know, I decided that I wanted to work with animals. I wanted a career with animals. I didn't know what that exactly meant. But so I decided to go to school to study animals. And when I went to school, we had a choice. It was animal science. It wasn't necessarily biomedical research or laboratory animal science. At that point, it was animal science. And then they had narrowed it down to a large animal science or small animal science. And so when I first began my college career, there were a lot of jokes surrounding, you know, what constitutes a small animal, what constitutes a large animal. Right when we got into the school, we needed to decide which track we were going to follow, small or large. And, uh, you know, at that point in my career, I really didn't have a lot of a big knowledge base about animals and what exactly I was going to do for the next, you know, how many years of my life. So I was trying to decide, do I prefer small animals or do I prefer large animals? And so that decision was made quickly for me after a couple of difficult encounters when uh, I was working at the barn and trying to feed a ram who was not so excited about my very early morning visits. So I decided that maybe small animals preferable for me rather than the large animals. And with that, I began studying small animals. And I really realized that at that point, I was introduced to the field of biomedical research and um, some of the possibilities there. So when I finished up college, I had debated about applying to vet school like many of those in my class were planning to do. And to be honest, I got a little nervous about the additional financial resources. I was financing my own college education. And so as we got closer to graduation and the bills were coming in, I was getting a little nervous that there would be more bills if I were to pursue additional education right after this. So I decided instead of applying to vet school that I would look for a job in the lab animal field and um, that is what brought me to the um, pharmaceutical industry. I started working in pharma. I've had a temp position actually in cage wash and I didn't know a lot about the industry at the time. I didn't know a lot about research. I knew a little bit just from my education at college, which eventually did focus on research, but I didn't know a whole lot about what I was getting into. And when I first started that position there, what I found out was that I really loved it. I mean, honestly, like I loved working in cage wash. I just thought it was so satisfying to be able to go into a space and see all of these things that needed done and then to be able to actually do them and then see at the end of the day that, you know, all those dirty cages were no longer there. They were now clean. And so, you know, I really loved it. I remember the first couple of days we had, you know, scheduled breaks at different times. And the person who I was working with, who had been a long time, he had probably been working in the field longer than I was alive. And he was like, Aaron, um, you need to uh, take a break. And I was like, no, 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 I'm just going to, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> I just, I loved it so much. And then, so, you know, I really realized, you know, I got a quick introduction about pharma and research and all of those things. And I really loved working with a whole bunch of different people who had very little college education, people who had, you know, who are MDs, PhDs, who had a lot of college education. And I just really love that environment of coming together with different types of people to accomplish the same goal. And then obviously to be able to interact with the animals and to work with them and to work with my hands. So for me, it was a really good fit into the lab animal science world. So that is how I got into the field. And uh, like I mentioned, I started working for pharma and then I was there for several years. And then our site closed as part of an acquisition. And that's what brought me to Drexel's Master of Laboratory Animal Science program. You know, that's how I, I got to where I am. But, uh, you know, it's been quite an exciting journey thus far and still a long part of the journey to go. So... 
Well, that's a perfect segue for my next question, which had more to do with, you know, if you can provide some information about Drexel's. I'm going to keep saying MLAS. So for everyone listening, Masters of Lab Animal Science, I always just default to MLAS. So if you hear me say MLAS, that's the program I'm talking about. So yeah, if you can give a little bit of information about Drexel's MLAS program, how long it's been around, admission requirements, average number of students and graduates, things like that. Absolutely. As you said, the MLAS program, the Master Laboratory Animal Science, it's known um, throughout the industry as MLAS. So you are correct in saying that. I think most people would recognize that. And the same with ALAS. So uh, the MLAS program has been around a long time, since 1986. So that's more than 36 years. And it was started at that time by Dr. Pierre Conti. And uh, the idea was he had worked for a long time for a pharma company as well. And he decided um, after leaving the company that there was an opportunity to have trained technicians and trained individuals in the lab animal field who could really then be able to go work within those lab animal facilities and vivariums and be able to really contribute to the process of biomedical research. So he felt that there was an opportunity there to be able to offer um, a higher level of training for individuals then who were going to have careers in laboratory animal science. So the program started with him and then it was um, continued with several other key individuals. Dr. Jerry Silverman was there for a while as well, Dr. Julian Messina. And then after that time is when I came about around uh, 2010 or so. And then currently, I am the program director working with um, Dr. Rick Kanicki, who is the associate director to the program. So there's been a lot of longevity there, you know, at Drexel with the MLAS program. And so, like I said, it's been around for more than 36 years. It started with a face-to-face program back then in 1986. In 2009, they brought along an online program, which was a little bit ahead of its time, you know, since the pandemic, everybody is kind of in the online space now. But at that point, it was, uh, you know, pretty progressive. And Drexel University in general is, you know, on the forefront of online programming. They have online school. They have way more than 140 programs of online education. So it just went right in line with all of the online programming that they were offering. And so it was, you know, very beneficial that they were progressive enough to see that and bring the the online program about. So the program is, the idea with the MLAS program, it offers you the best of both worlds because it offers students who are interested in attending vet school, it offers them a second chance to be able to enhance their application in applying to vet school. So for example, if they've had you know a lower undergraduate GPA or they struggled a little bit in their college experience, which is pretty much like most of us out there, they can come and do Drexel's MLAS program and then that will help show the vet schools that they are then capable of upper level coursework and you know help them have a second chance of applying to vet school if that's what they're interested in doing. Um, And then we have another population of students who are in this research space and who are looking to continue their careers in the lab animal science field. They're looking for upper level management type positions. And so they are looking to obtain the MLAS degree for those purposes to be able to fulfill those advanced management spots. But so in terms of admission requirements, basically what we're looking for is we're looking for students who have completed the traditional veterinary prerequisites, meaning that they've taken a year of chemistry, biology, organic chemistry, physics, and then they've done well in those courses and that they also have a a GPA usually of around a 3.0, which is a B or higher. So we just want them to be able to be competitive, you know, and handle those difficult upper level courses. In students, what's really been interesting is the trends with, um, like I said, the online versus the in-person. So when I started more than 12 years ago, of course, we had a larger in-person class and a very small online class. And since that time, we've seen those numbers switch. Our online class actually now is the larger group and our in-person group is the smaller group. Typically, every year, we have about five to 10 in-person students and about 
20 or so online students. So with that being said, though, like I said, we've seen those numbers really change. We used to have a really large in-person class, but now I think it's just, you know, with the result of the pandemic, everybody is really looking for the convenience of online programming and the flexibility to be able to attend classes in person if they'd like. And then also they can attend classes like today when it's not so nice outside that they can also do the same thing from the convenience of their living room and be on their computer and learning the same material. So, and like I said, over a period of time, we've been around since, you know, 1986. So during that time, we've probably had about, you know, at least 700 graduates. We have a lot of name recognition out there in the industry. There are a lot of people in the lab animal space that have an MLAS degree. And that's, you know, something that is unique to Drexel. It's not a master of science degree. It's actually a master of laboratory animal science. And we were the first ones to be able to come up with that designation. So you will see a lot of in people's auto signature, you will see that designation of MLAS. And then you will know that they are a graduate of Drexel's MLAS program. I had no idea there were these programs in 1986. I mean, I guess this one program. I didn't either. And and it's extremely unique. And uh, like going back to 1986, yeah, we were the only one actually in this space until very recently. We do have several competitors now, but um, that's all been in the last less than 10 years. So Yeah. Yeah. I think like you said, I think a lot of people do use it because I considered it if I didn't get into vet school my first time around, I kind of considered either go on that route, either to boost my application for vet school or to just kind of further advance my career within the field, you know? Uh, I have one question though. Sure. Is there any in-person requirement if you were to do the online program? Is there any amount of time that you have to be on campus for like lab experience, wet lab experience or something like that? Or can it be truly online if that's the track you choose? Traditionally, when we began the online program, we had a requirement that students needed to have a minimum of two years of experience in the lab animal field okay. in order for them to apply to the online program. If they didn't, then we would funnel them more into the face-to-face program so we could gotcha. offer that hands-on experience for them. However, recently, we've begun to realize that we can offer the same types of experiences for the online student who does not have those two years experience. So for example, somebody who's just starting out in their career, the difference would be then they would need to complete. We have an experiential learning opportunity called, uh, we call it the practicum. Basically, it's a 12-week externship where students will go and work in any of the local or not even local, but even um, across the U.S., any of the pharma companies or biotech companies or universities, and they'll work in the vivaria of those institutions to be able to get the hands-on experience that they need. So it's basically 12 weeks, 40 hours, you know, a week to be able to get that hands-on experience. So the academic programming is 100% online. If the students don't have the minimum of two years experience, then they would need to complete you know, an externship or the practicum, that can be where they are though. So it doesn't mean that they'd have to come into Philadelphia to do that. If they're located in Texas, they could, you know, find a university and work, you know, in a university that's close by to them in their research space there. Yeah. Good question. I had the same question because a lot of online programs all yeah. that and next thing you know, they're telling you need to come to campus and you're like, well, wait a second. <laughs> no, so. uh, the only time we tell them to come is for graduation. And uh, a lot of our students, uh, our online students actually do come for graduation. Cool. And uh, yeah, it's exciting for some of them. It's the first time they've been in Philly, but uh, you know, it's always surprising to me is they come with their cohort of students in the online part and they're all close friends and they really haven't ever met in person, but you would never be able to tell. Yeah, I know. And that's just becoming more common and common now with, with after the pandemic and online. It was funny to see all of the 
like first and second years when I was in vet school, I mean, basically they were doing online vet school, but you'd go to school and see them interacting and they'd still have the same, they still had the same connections that we all had where we had in-person like orientations and all these trust building exercises and everything. They didn't get that yet. They were still like, they found ways to still connect and be close and and stuff yeah. together and make groups and make an experience out of it. So it's all what you put into it. And it sounds like the students that are in the program all, they want to be there and, and they want to make the best of it. Yeah. And for me, I found it um, extremely interesting in that I teach in both the sections, in the online sections and the face-to-face sections. And, um, you know, when online programming first came about, there was a lot of criticism about, you know, the interaction and what the students were actually getting out of it. As an instructor who has seen both, I can tell you that the online classrooms are almost more robust than the in-person. If I'm teaching in an in-person classroom and I ask students, like, do you have any questions or, you know, can you share any experiences? You know, it's usually, you know, crickets, no one offers anything. And But in the online space, when you're doing that as part of a discussion board and everybody's contributing, you really get to learn a lot about each of the students and where they're from and their backgrounds and their institutions. And everybody has a different position. Some people may be working for the IACUC. Some people, we actually have students who are veterinarians. Others are supervisors or technicians, and they're working for you know pharma or biotech or academia. And so you really get to learn not only a lot about that student, but a lot about the institution that they're working for and the position that they're in. So as a student, especially a person who's newer to our field, going into that space, it's really, I mean, I kind of wish I had that opportunity in that you really get to see like, wow, these are all the things that are possible. Like I may be working as a vet tech now, but I could be an iCook administrator or I could be directing a facility and like see actually like what it means and then be able to, you know, actually put a face with a name and have somebody to reach out to be able to mentor them in the future. I think that's one of the strongest aspects of the program is just that ability to hear everybody's story and to network and then to have those connections. Yeah, absolutely. Which kind of, I mean, you kind of already talked about some of it. It kind of segues into my next question is if whether, you know, someone's in this field or not and they wanted to go get this, you know, this MLAS degree, you know, what kind of career opportunities away? I mean, you talked about ag cook, manager, potentially a director of a, of a program, things like that. What kind of benefit does someone have, again, whether they're experienced or they have no experience and they're hearing this for the first time? And they realize like, hey, I want a career change or I've been looking for what you know, something to do. And this sounds like it's right up my alley. What could wait for them, you know, following getting this type of degree? Yeah. I mean, I think really, like I mentioned before, I, for somebody who knows that they want a career working with animals, it allows them the opportunities to take multiple tracks. You know, like you were mentioning with vet school, like if you wanted to go that way, you could. You know, we have many students who end up going to vet school and then end up completing a lab animal residency as well. You know, it offers you up that opportunity to keep that door open to vet school if that's what you're considering. But then also, if you're looking to stay in the field of research, you know, we mentioned some of the possibilities with different positions. If you're looking, if you're newer, I think it affords you the opportunity to be able to see all of the possibilities in the lab animal field and see if there's something that's of interest to you. The other part, like I mentioned, is the networking part too. That's just, you don't get that anywhere else. I mean, I worked in farmer for, you know, over 10 years before I came to Drexel. And it took me at least those 10 years to be able to put the connections that I had into play to meet all the key players. You know, who do you go to when you need flooring? And who do you go to when you need feed? And who do you go to for public outreach type stuff? Like who are the key players in the field? It took me a long time and, you know, I'm still acquiring a lot of those connections. 
But somebody coming out of the MLAS program, they have a lot of those already. You know, they know who to contact. Uh, they've met a lot of the key players in the field. We have a lot of classes that are team taught where we have local veterinarians come into the classroom or teach online and they can meet a lot of different lab animal veterinarians in the Philadelphia area. We have a lot of professionals, you know, vendors working in the lab animal space that are also in the field as well. They graduate with those connections in play. And, uh, you know, that's something that takes years to be able to acquire. That is definitely a strong part about the program. The other part is just the name recognition. A lot of people recognize the Drexel brand, the MLS program within our industry. And, you know, whether it's, you know, you're applying to vet school or you're looking for a job in the field, I think having that degree designation really, you know, it means something to a lot of people. I mean, Drexel University is a large university, but the MLS program is a very small program within that university. So it's very different than like people who say they graduate from, you know, these larger institutions. You know, we were talking about the Ohio State or Penn State or any of those places. And, you know, if you say, oh, like I graduated from Penn State, like you may not have had any of the same instructors, the same experience or, you know, any of those things. But when you graduate from the MLAS program, you are still probably having some of the same instructors that have been there for, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. You're interacting with the same people, the same faculty. So that's a very intimate environment within a larger university. So you have the best of both worlds there, the small programming and then the large name recognition. So I think there's a lot of benefits to coming to the program and completing the degree. Like I said, anybody who knows minimally they want to have a career working with animals, I think it's a fantastic place to start. You kind of make me want to. You know, <laughs> Jeff, you've got enough school, okay? <laughs> I know. It just sounds exciting. It's exciting. Sounds like, sounds like fun. I'll be looking yeah. forward to your application. <laughs> I am tired of school, though. Yeah, Jeff, you can't put your wife through any more of that. She's <laughs> she would have supported you through <laughs> more than I can imagine. I also kind of wanted to talk about like the importance of people who already work in this industry kind of getting these degrees. And there's also different certifications that they can get in the field. But I think it you know definitely benefits certainly benefits the animals, but it also kind of illustrates to the public the true level of passion that everyone has in this field. And just sort of wanted your take, if there's other things I'm not thinking of or other points you'd want to make, just the benefit of having furthered your education within this field, because it is a smaller field and people might think, you know, like, oh, that's, it's very niche, but it's also, I don't know, it's very important to kind of, in my opinion, show the public that there is more education and more information out there for people to get. Yeah. I mean, I think whether it's this program or any of the certifications through ALAS, I definitely think that, you know, it shows a commitment to the field. It shows a commitment to research. It shows a commitment to the animals in research. But also, I feel like biomedical research, lab animal science, this field is... It's a career. It's not so much a job. It's a career. Um, there are a lot of opportunities. You know, where you start off in this industry is usually not where you end up. That's something that I always, you know, say to people who are newer to this field is that there's a lot of room for growth. And so as part of that, there are a lot of different changes and uh, advancements that happen, you know, as part of that, whether you're changing positions or just the scientific advancements that have happened over time. You know, for example, we saw some major changes in 2020 with the AVMA guidelines on euthanasia about, you know, CO2 use. And so, you know, it's important to be able to get that information, you know, whether you're getting that from continuing education or you're getting that information from, you know, a degree program or, you know, somebody in your institution is a attending classes and bringing that back to the institution. But I think it's really important to be at the forefront of that and to be able to understand that the changes happened, know why they happened, you know, what research that it's based on. There's a lot of opportunities to stay current in our field. And then also 
there have been a lot of refinements with, um, you know, health monitoring lately. So now, you know, in our field, people are using sentinel-free monitoring and, uh, you know, the environmental air dust technology that wasn't around, or at least it wasn't, um, you know, well utilized, you know, more than five or six years ago. You know, it's a lot of changes that happen. And, um, you know, if you're not pursuing education, you're not participating in certification programs or degree programs, I think that you might be missing out on, on some of those things. And obviously, it's those refinements that end up benefiting the animals as well. So as part of the three R's, you know, it's important to, you know, work on the refinements, the replacements, and all of these things are techniques and advancements that we learn throughout these education programs. So whether they're continuing education certifications or degree granting. So I think it's really important not only to show the public that we're committed, but also I think it's our responsibility within the field, you know, to remain educated and up to date on all of this information because it changes quickly. I feel like I'm always out there trying to get the latest information, you know, attending the National ALAS conference and looking online and doing webinars and those things. And I feel like there are quite a few times where I see things and I'm like, ooh, like when did we start doing this? Like I didn't realize that this was a thing. And that's when um, you know, it's very interesting too to see in the online courses to see which institutions and who is taking advantage of what refinements and who is, you know, employing what different techniques in their facilities because it really gives you an idea of where we are as an industry and where we are headed and maybe where we need to go. So I think it's really important to be engaged in the field. And like I said, it's way more than a job. It's way more than coming to work every day and, you know, no matter what your role is, caring for the animals or changing cages or working in cage wash, you know, I think, you know, there's a much bigger picture there and there's a responsibility, the public and to the animals to be as educated as we can. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I like how you say it's not just a job, it's a career. And that's so true for the vast majority of the field. They don't look at it as it's just a temporary job. They look at it as this is what they're doing forever. And and like you said, the field, you know, there is some pressure from opposition to make sure we're always on top of animal welfare, but it's also just a lot of it just comes from, you know, within the field itself. Everyone working in this field, like we've talked about so so often, is truly dedicated. They seek those certifications. They seek advancing themselves. They seek new ways to provide for the animals. And if you go to any institution, every institution is a little bit different. And it's always fun to see the creativity that they come up with to make sure they're going above and beyond regulations or trying to find new ways to implement regulations and improve animal welfare just on their own. Because like you said, that's kind of the obligation of anyone working in this field to make sure we're doing the best for the animals. So not just like you said, to show the public, but because that's what everyone in this field wants to do um, and they enjoy it every day. So moving on to something, you know, a little more fun and exciting about you talk to us and we've asked previous guests to just to tell us about their and not to everything you've said is very exciting. Now we get to the exciting yeah, part. Right? No, just also more exciting. more exciting. Let's move on to the next exciting topic. There you go. What is your favorite laboratory animal? And if you would, if you have any particular stories about working in the lab that were just kind of fun and exciting that you know we would enjoy hearing, please feel free. And I'm sure you have many, but maybe you've had a chance to think about one. Yeah. So in terms of my favorite lab animal, I think there are cat people and there are dog people. And so there are mouse people and there are rat people. And so what I've decided is that I am definitely a rat person. I love them and I am always just a little suspicious of mice and maybe that is more me than the mouse. Mm -hmm. 
if a dog is upset with you, a dog is going to let you know and they're going to growl usually, usually before they bite you. But a cat, yeah, you can be petting your cat at home and then your cat just decides it's had enough and it just turns around and, you know, launches at you without any warning. And I feel like this is the same with rats and mice. And I think a rat, if it's getting irritated, it will let you know. But I feel like a mouse, it's just, you know, all rules are off. I'm always very cautious with mice and I always tell the students the same thing, but I feel like every year there's always a student who is like a mouse whisperer and, you know, we shouldn't be putting the animals near our faces and we shouldn't be doing it, you know, but um, every year there's, you know, these students who are like, oh, this mouse is so nice. And like, they're petting the mouse and, uh, you know, trying to give the mouse kisses. And I'm like, "Mm, that's the worst thing that you can do, but I don't know. It's always worked out. So I don't know. I'm thinking maybe it's me and it's not the mouse, but I feel like rats are so very complex and intelligent. And I'm not, I'm sure that there's a lot of mouse lovers out there. I'm going to be getting hate that mice are the same way. I am not saying that they're not, but uh, I think rats in particular, they're complex. They're so intelligent. And, um, you know, any of the new research out there, you know, from the North American three R's collaborative with um, Megan LaFollette talks about, you know, rat tickling and all of those fun things. And you can get certified in those. And some of the videos, like it's so much fun to see how interactive and complex their behaviors are. And I feel like we're really only touching the iceberg with some of the possibilities there with positive interactions and environmental changes and things like that that can make an impact. So I think there's so much fun to watch and they're just, you know, they're so intelligent. And I really feel like we're only hitting the iceberg with our interactions with them. So they are definitely probably my favorite lab animal over all of them. If you get any hate mail about the mice, I got your back. (laughs) I want to contribute to that because I, as a little kid, the reason I got into this field, I love small rodents. Like I call them furry woodland creatures. Give me all the chipmunks and squirrels and fuzzy things. So I had pet mice as a kid. And my mom was like, I don't want mice in my house. Like this is disgusting. And now she kind of jokes like, okay, you made a career out of it. I feel better about having had all those mice in my house. But when I was in college, I took a lab animal science course. And that was what really introduced me to this field. And I got to adopt my rat that we had in that class. And his name was Nacho. And I didn't even know how much I could love a rat because I think mice are cuter, but this rat had the best personality. He would ride around. I would wear hoodies and he would kind of hang out in my hood and we would go to like the pet store and a woman in the pet store looked at me like, there's a rodent in your shirt. (laughs) But like just the level of interaction that I could get with the rat was different than what I had. I loved my pet mice. I still love mice. We know you love mice. We've seen your But there is something about interacting with rats that is different and, I don't know, on a different level. I agree with you. Yeah, I do. (laughs) So those are probably my favorite. But there's something that's very intriguing to me, I think, about guinea pigs. I don't know if they're so unassuming and they kind of fly under the radar. So I don't know if there's like a hidden intelligence there or, you know, sometimes I feel like it's a little bit like that movie Boss Baby, you know, where like everybody leaves and it's maybe like the guinea pigs that are running the whole show. But like, I can't decide if they are the most intelligent lab animal or the least intelligent. My kids, you know, when they were smaller, we ended up adopting a retired breeder that actually Dr. Hunnicke had utilized to uh, write a section in, I think, one of the blue books. So this retired breeder, I had small kids at the time, and I'm like, sure, I will take this retired breeder guinea pig home. It's one guinea pig. I took the thing home and my kids, I think, were like two and four at the time. So they were so excited. It was the sweetest guinea pig. I had it there at work, I think, before I took it home. And it was like sitting in my lap and I was petting it while I was, you know, doing my email. It was this cute guinea pig. So took it home and, uh, you know, had it at the house. And, uh, you know, I was feeding it ad lib. And every time I would walk in the door from work, it would squeak, 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 squeak. 
And I'm like, this thing is so hungry. So I kept feeding it and I went to work and I said to, you know, my colleague, Dr. Haneke, who had given me the guinea pig. And I'm like, this thing is eating a lot. And he's like, are you restricting the feed? And I'm like, no, because why would I? It just seems like it's hungry. And he's like, you should probably maybe not be feeding it so much. I'm like, okay, so maybe I should cut back. But then it seemed like every time it saw me, it was like, re, 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 like it wanted the food. And who then trained like, who? Yeah. Right. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, the guinea pig just, you know, has me trained, just wants the food bowl filled. So at this point, too, they had, I asked the kids, you know, what they wanted to name the guinea pig. And I'm not quite sure how this transpired, but they decided the guinea pig's name would be Sharky. So it was a female guinea pig and I doesn't look like a shark to me. I don't I have no idea, but Sharky was the name. So anyway, so my daughter Ophelia walks over and she grabs the skinny pig and kind of picks it up, you know, underneath the arms and holds it so it's like vertical. She's holding it there and the guinea pig is, you know, like I said, I'm not sure if they're the least intelligent or the most intelligent because it's just sitting there. I'm looking at it and I'm like that guinea pig is very large and I was like retired breeder. <laughs> I'm like she was not retired for very long. <laughs> So I went back to work and I was like, oh, I volunteered for one guinea pig. I'm like, she's pregnant. So what happened was then obviously we had more guinea pigs. And so then Sharky became known as Mama Sharky. And then the original Mama Shark. <laughs> exactly. Who knew? And then so she had babies. And so then it was Mama Sharky and the babies were collectively known as the Sharkies. So all of our guinea pigs, which now we're totaling four, were known as the Sharkies. And of course, there were three boys and then the females. So then with that, we had to have two cages of guinea pigs in our living room for about seven years. Wow. That's fun though. I bet the kids just loved it. That's super never, fun. Yeah. Never so knew that's, what you were getting into. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's why I wasn't sure because they were so fun and they were so good with the kids. And I don't think they yeah. ever bit anybody, but the guinea pigs would ride around in the shopping carts and they would, you know, sometimes they would go outside and they yeah. would be playing on the playground and they seemed to enjoy it. So I'm not quite sure if they were like really plotting world domination or if they were just yeah. <laughs> accepting <laughs> their fate. <laughs> Too funny. I've worked with lots of guinea pigs and I have never had one try to bite me. I don't I know. different experiences, but not one. I've always had good experiences with them. That's yeah, funny. Great. I've had rabbits not try to bite me, but like if I'm not, when I was like new to the rabbit realm, they'll turn around and like kick you and you'll scratch your glove right off. I'm like, okay, got to try again. Let's do this yeah. a little better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every mice I've worked with, every mouse has tried to bite me. Every right. So I'd like to see actually some more research on the guinea pigs. Like, what is it with the guinea pigs? Are so they... <laughs> we have right. joked in previous episodes, I think Disney needs to make like a Pixar movie of like lab animal, like a vivarium after dark, like the oh, parties that go on. Wonderful <laughs> idea. But I would just want to make sure that they did it from our perspective and not like an escape. I wouldn't want like right. an escape movie. I would want right. like bringing out the popcorn from the enrichment pantry and like, you know. Having... Right, right, right. Yeah. So I think Disney needs to. They need to have you on set, Daniel, yes. to direct. Yes, yes, to direct. Right. <laughs> and it would be the guinea pigs who would be like in charge of the yeah. whole operation. <laughs> yeah. Because they right. kind of like sneak around and work together to get the enrichment or something. We also like to ask our guests, we've asked, I think almost everyone who's been on the show, how do you approach talking to strangers and the public about what you do for a living? And you're kind of coming at it from a different perspective. So that might be kind of interesting. And I was actually at a primer talk 
this week about compassion fatigue. And they were saying that one area, and I didn't even think about this till they said it, it can be sort of isolating for a lot of people to not get to openly talk about what they do. And that can sort of contribute to that compassion fatigue. So we like to sort of talk to our listeners about, you know, how do you approach that topic if you're on an airplane or at a party with people you don't know? How do you talk about what you do? To be honest with you, I feel like that's an area where I am still struggling. And I think it's because, you know, when I graduated in the 90s, we were all told, don't talk about what you do. Yeah. We changed when we got to work I and mean, they didn't want us outside in our scrubs. They were trying to keep a low profile. And I think that was part of our education and part of our upbringing in the field. You know, obviously things have changed a lot. And, you know, I think that that's one of the greatest advancements that we have. But I think it for us, I guess I'm an older generation in the field right now, but for those of us who have been around for a little while, I think it is an area that we still struggle with because it's just so ingrained in our minds. But so what I've really done is I've learned a lot from the younger generation, from our students, and then actually my daughter, my kids. I think my first response is still hesitation, even though as much education as I have and I know the right things to say. But it's so funny to listen to, you know, my daughter, she knows what I do and she's aware of, you know, I'm always talking to her at home about the benefits of animal research and how it's so necessary and how it contributed to the vaccine development and all of those things. So her first response always, you know, she gets asked, you know, she's in high school now, so she's in 10th grade, but everybody knows that we enjoy animals and we have several dogs and a lot of things at home. And people will ask, you know, what is your do. She is very proud and she will put her hands on her hips and she will say, you know, she works in research and she works with lab animals and she, you know, kind of challenges people to question it. And, you know, she's like, well, this, she does this because the public needs these services and, um, you know, the lab animals are dedicating their lives to these services that the public demands. And, you know, it makes me laugh sometimes because I'm ready to jump in there. But half the time, you know, when she approaches it like that, people will just say, oh, you know, that's wonderful. And I think maybe that's the part that we struggle with is that for those of us who have been in the field for a long time, we hesitate and, you know, we were told to use euphemisms and, you know, and I think all of those things tend to build a little bit of distrust, you know, with, you know, whoever we're talking with. And I think that can, um, you know, help to make the interaction more complicated. But I think if we address the questions head on and with confidence, you know, with compassion and, and all of those things, I think that that makes the conversation much much easier. And I think that that's what people want to hear and what people need to see from us. And so um, I've learned a lot from my kids and um, from the students, whereas, you know, my first response might be hesitation and I might be going through all the possibilities in my head. And I don't think that the younger generation does. I think because of all the things that we've had access to the past 15 or so years, I think that they are much more confident and much more controlled with some of those conversations. And so I can say some of the biggest things that had an impact on me several years ago, Ago, there was a gentleman, Paul McPhillips, who was the uh, vice president for the Foundation of Biomedical Research. And so he was a journalist in Washington, D.C., and he had spent some time in Iraq and he did a lot of programming with he had this program called Quad Speak. And so it was basically on how to talk to different groups of people about animal research. And so it was like, how do you talk to a classroom? How do you talk to your family? How do you talk to people on the street? For me, that was really beneficial in that it gave me a little confidence at an early point in my career where I just wanted to know, like, what is the right thing to say and how do I say this? 
And so it gave me kind of a, um, you know, just a structure in which to have those conversations. So I can tell you that uh, I did start off very hesitant, like a lot of people, and it is very challenging to talk about what we do. But I think the only way to do it is just to put it out there and to be very honest. And so that's what I do now. It's a little different because I work for an academic institution and it's more of a, a role within a graduate program. You know, and I do mention that we help students to gain additional roles and careers in laboratory animal science and we help students get to vet school. So I do mention all of those things, but I think it's a little different when you're actually doing the research. And so, you know, I will tell people too that I worked for many years doing research with mice and rats. And I have found that that's the key is if you really need to just be direct and be straight on. And the more that you kind of circle around the issue and use euphemisms, I think that's where some of the conversation can get a little tricky and a little uncomfortable. So just to answer the questions head on, like you were talking to a friend, when I go into the classrooms and talk to kids, I used to be really nervous about some of the things that they would say. But, you know, I found that once you go a couple of times, you realize that the questions are very similar and they just want to know that the animals are being taken care of, that there are regulations in place so that they have enrichment and they have proper food and water and care and all of those things. And that's really all that they want to know. Once you do those things a few times and you realize the different scope of the questions that are going to be asked, I think it's a lot less intimidating. So my advice would be just to get out there and have those conversations and to get into classroom a little bit. I think that that helps just to get rid of your fear by knowing all the different possibilities. And I think another thing that's made the conversation a little bit more easy recently is the whole COVID-19 pandemic. I think that has really illustrated that, that animal research is necessary and that there is a tangible outcome because of it. It's been a few years now where all of that was right in the media all the time. But I really think that that has helped at least to, you know, have that conversation and have the public be a little bit more knowledgeable and accepting about what it is that um, animal research entails and what it involves. Yeah, the pandemic has helped definitely in that regard. And I remember when the vaccine was first starting to come out, there was lots of push by, you know, PETA and other groups saying that animals weren't needed in mm -hmm. the development of the vaccine. And this shows why we don't need animal research, but that got shut down pretty quick. And I think even some journalists kind of like commented or yeah. wrote some like response articles They're saying like, that you know, you know, animals were indeed needed. I sent some comments into some, some of the articles. They never replied, but like, this is like, it's like completely <laughs> ignorant to say that animals yeah. weren't needed. So, and good for your daughter getting out there and just you know, just standing up for the field and saying exactly yeah. what it is and just not having hesitation that, you know, I think you said that you have and that I've definitely had before in the past and everything too. So I think the more we start talking about it openly and honestly, it just becomes easier for everybody. You know, once we start hesitating or using, you know, other ways to talk about it, it looks like we're trying to hide something and we shouldn't be ashamed of what we all do. I keep saying we, I mean, I feel like I'm still involved in the field of live animal medicine, although I'm working in you know private practice right now, but... You still belong, Jeff. Yeah. We'll let you back in anytime I, you come. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for not pulling my membership card. No, you're in. Yeah. With that, I mean, you've said lots of very exciting things um, throughout the podcast, not just the last two questions. The entire episode has been great. And you've offered lots of it, great information and details, things that I, I had no idea about particularly like in last degrees being around since the year I was born. So if you have anything else that you want to share with our listeners, now's the time. Obviously, we can't touch on every subject, but feel free. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, just along the same notes that we were talking about with COVID-19, I think that really opened the door. And I was just listening to Get Real podcast in preparation of this podcast. I was trying to hype myself up, you know, feeling like a celebrity and all. So I just really think the key with all of this is just being open and transparency with the public. 
in order to have future progress, I think we need to participate in programs like the Concordat and Openness and have all of the institutions just be out there and be open about the research that's you know being conducted. It's, the public wants the research done. And I think we just need to be more upfront about what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it and you know have them be able to see exactly how it's translating into outcomes. Um, like I said, with the COVID vaccine, I mean, it's very clear that which animal models were utilized and then the outcome was a vaccine that ended up impacting, you know, so many people's lives personally. So I think we need to do that in every case. I mean, every time somebody takes, you know, an Advil, like they need to be able to know like, okay, were animals used in this process? You know, I think once we get to that point, I think it's going to change the conversation quite a bit. So I don't know if that will ever happen in my lifetime, but I really look forward to more transparency, not just on an individual level with all of us. I think we can only do so much, but I think everyone, the whole industry, you know, all of the institutions really need to get out there and participate and uh, have a, uh, a stake in the game and really say to the public that this is what we're doing and we're doing it because you want it done. But you know, in order for you to get the outcomes that you need, then this is what needs to happen and just have it be right out there and be very transparent about those things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think more institutions are realizing that mm-hmm. as well and opening their doors and putting their programs on their website and not trying to hide everything. It's great. We're definitely getting there. You know, hopefully we will see it in our Yeah, lifetime. and I think like your podcast and these other podcasts that are in this space. I mean, I think that that couple years ago, this would be unheard of. So I think that this is so cool that you can just, you know, pull up your playlist and listen to any of these things. And, you know, it's not restricted and it's open to anyone in the world to listen to. And they can listen to people who are actually doing the work and involved with the animal studies. So it's a huge step. You know, I feel like when we were talking about this, I was fangirling a little bit because I'm like, this is huge. There's only a certain number of podcasts in our little space. So, you know, it's a huge deal to be involved with this. Yeah. And it's awesome. And we have, I mean, like Cindy Buckmaster's Get Real. You have the three R's, their three minute podcasts, the Legal Drugs podcast. Where they talk a little bit about animal research as well. And I think the more we talk about it, when there's more podcasts, I start to talk about it and, and other sources of, of media, whether or not we ever see it on like Netflix or anything like that, They're like documentaries, inside looks into labs. Yeah, I think that'd cool. be awesome. But the more that people talk about it, I think we'll see more podcasts and different approaches to talking about it. And it's just going to continue to improve from there. So I appreciate your time coming to talk to us today. It's awesome to talk to people like you and get your insight into the field and hear about your background and everything you've done. And so thanks for everything you've done. And thanks for your time. We really appreciate it and learned a lot. And I know our listeners will definitely enjoy hearing this episode and getting to see this episode, not just hear it. So (laughs) we'll put this up on our YouTube channel for everybody to see. Danielle, anything else? No, I just winced when you said YouTube, but... I'll, I know. I'll be okay. I know you want your face out there. Look how nice your office looks. You got a window? You got an upgrade? Yes, I got upgraded. That's right. <laughs> so. This is my first week in an office with a window, so it's a big deal. <laughs> that is a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So again, please go out there, rate, review our show on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you can. Aaron, again, thank you so much. Thanks everyone for listening. And we'll talk to you guys next time on Live Broad Chat. Take care, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks.